And so Jeremiah 29 is where we are today. Jeremiah 29 verses 4 through 9. Let's hear God's word. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the chance once again uh, to be in worship and to be before your word. God, we thank you that you have given us such an abundance uh, of testimony, such an incredible witness over thousands of years uh, of your heart, uh, of the way that you relate to your people, uh, for us to understand your character and your nature that you have seen your people through all kinds of seasons and ups and downs, and you have continued consistently uh, to speak and to make yourself known and to teach us what it's like to follow you in all things. God, I pray especially here at the beginning of a, of a year, uh, as we are looking ahead to 2023, God, we pray uh, that you would shape us and mold us by your Spirit, that we would have hearts and minds that are um, conformed to you and, and focused on you, focused on what it looks like to follow you in the middle of our lives and seasons and cultures and towns and all that we have going on. God, we pray that we would be diligently seeking you. Bless this time that we share before your word. In Christ's name I pray. I pray. Amen. 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 Peace. That's something we all want, right? Amen. I would imagine that just about everybody in the world, okay, maybe not everybody, but just about everybody would say they want peace. They long for peace. We all long for peace. And you would think that if it's something that everybody wants, we should, we should be able to have it, right? Certainly, if everybody's on the same page about wanting peace, then we could all have peace, right? Somehow that doesn't actually work out. Probably have different definitions of peace. That's part of it. But we just live in, a, in an, an unpeaceful, in a broken world that is unpeaceful in so many different ways. We're surrounded by troubles and hardships and aches and pains and sickness and grief and ups and downs and rush hour traffic and obnoxious 24-hour news cycles and spilled coffee and stubbed toes and all kinds of headaches and heartaches, all kinds of things that rob us of peace. We long for peace and yet we don't have so often that the thing that we're, we're looking for, we're searching for, it, it eludes our grasp. It's just seems to be just beyond our reach. We keep thinking, at this point, then, then I'll have peace, and yet that, that point comes, and then there's still no relaxation. There's no peace. There's no break, and it keeps going. We have this longing inside of us. This, this seems to be human. It seems to be what it means to be human. We long for this sense of peace, and yet it's not, so often not there. C.S. Lewis famously said, if we find ourselves, if find if we find, if we find ourselves with the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. There, there is a peace that's to come. 
for all those who know the Lord, for all those who know Christ, there is a peace that is to come. And the Bible speaks of this time coming when things will be made right and whole once again. And so between here and there, between here and Christ's return or our departure of this world to go and be with Him for all who know Him, we, we are living in an in-between time. In the Bible, 1 Peter 1.11, Peter calls us sojourners and exiles. We are passing through this world. We are just uh, exiled from, from the way things were meant to be in the garden, and we are on our way to the way things will ultimately be restored. Philippians 3.20, Paul tells us that our citizenship, where we ultimately belong, is in heaven. That's ultimate. That's where we're headed. And we can feel that. We can feel that this, there's a discontentment with the things of this world. We live in a time where our, our culture is growingly, growing increasingly secular, where it's distancing itself more and more from, from Christianity and from the Bible. And so we can feel this, this, this tension that there's just not a peace like we want in this life. Politics and culture wars are what makes the news, and maybe that, that feels disruptive to you, but maybe it's more personal for you. Grief, sorrow, hardships at home, hardships at work, brokenness all around us can cause, cause us to have a lack of peace. Now, we don't know when Christ will come back, and we, we, await, for his, we await His return. So the question is, before that point, there were, there's a day for all who know Jesus when, when peace will be restored, and we'll have everything right again. But what about now? What about your Monday morning? What about your day to day? How do you how do you live with this longing for peace and a longing for things to be made right and yet not not have it? We're exiles, we're strangers, we're sojourners in this world. So how do we relate to a world that's especially especially in our time, our day and age, increasingly difficult to live in? Last week New Year's Day our word was devoted coming from Acts 2:42. We talked about Four different specific practices that we encourage you every year, but just focusing on this this year, to be devoted to in 2023, being devoted to the Word, being devoted to one another, being devoted to the Lord's Supper when we take that together, and be devoted to prayer. So this week, the second Sunday of the new year, I want that, that was kind of in the nitty-gritty. I want to zoom out today to a, a 30,000-foot view, so to speak, uh, of looking at kind of a big-picture vision a big picture uh, approach for, for life and ministry and how we do what we do. What, what's our approach to this life, given the fact that we're not in the Garden of Eden and we're not in heaven. Christ has come. He has defeated sin, death, and the grave, and we're still here. What do we do with this? What do we do with this life? The nitty-gritty, Bible, encourage one another, pray. Those were the nitty-gritty last week. Zoom out. What's this week? What's the big picture vision for what we're doing. Well, there's a, a time period in the Old Testament that I think will, will help us with that kind of big picture view. It's a time when God's people, the nation of Israel, were in exile. They had been in the promised land. They had been in the place that God had given to Abraham and Isaac, that they had, and Isaac and Jacob, that he had promised them they would come to. And so Moses and then Joshua leads them in. But then after a, a long period of time in sin, they are exiled from that land. They're taken away from the, the place where they had been promised. It's about 600 or so years before Christ to about 538, about 70-ish years that the people are living out, out of the land that they're supposed to. They're living as exiles. And when the New, New Testament calls us as Christians exiles, it, it's, it's an opportunity for us to look back during that period of the Old Testament and say, what can we learn 
about what it means to live in a land that is not our ultimate home. Because for a generation of people in Israel, they had to live in a land that wasn't their own. If you've ever traveled to a land that's not your own, maybe it's just a, a, across the country, or, or maybe it's to a different country, you know how jarring that can be. You know how strange it can be to maybe it's a place that doesn't speak your language or drives on the wrong side of the road or something like that. Just all the little details of life. When you are away from home, it can be very disruptive. It can be confusing. How do you live like that? Well, the Bible tells us our whole existence is living in a place that is not our ultimate home. How do we live that way? For the people of Israel, they were taken captive not by a, a friendly group of people that just wanted to spend some more time with them. They, they were taken captive by a pagan foreign nation that did not worship the one true God, that did not love them. And so for people like Daniel and all kinds of others, as they were sent into Babylon, they were having to live in a hostile environment. What does it look like to live in a place when you are in exile? Jeremiah was speaking on behalf of the Lord and wrote that group a letter about how to live there. How do you live in Babylon? When Israel's your home, how do you live in Babylon? I hope you can see that this would be a, a helpful letter to us. We are living in exile. Jeremiah wrote a letter to exiles. It's a helpful letter for how we live. And what he writes to them is about how they can have peace, not just when they return. He does promise that. That's a verse you know, Jeremiah 29, 11. is about when they get back to the land of Israel. But he, the first part of the letter is about how to have peace there before they leave. Seventy years there in exile, how do you have peace while you're there? Not just, not just when it's over, but while you're living in exile. That's a word to us because we, we long for Christ to come back. We know things are going to be great, but what about today? How do we, live, how do we find peace today? Jeremiah writes to them about, about peace, and it's, it's a Hebrew word you may have heard. It's the word shalom. Right? You've heard that word, shalom. And, and still in the Hebrew language that's spoken uh, in Israel and other places around, they still use shalom just as a common greeting. Peace. Peace be with you. But it's a word that's very rich. It's a word that's very deep. You know, a very, a very thin definition of peace is a, an, a, an absence of conflict. You know, if there's an absence of conflict, that's a one form of peace. So that's true, but, but this kind of peace, the way the Bible talks about peace, Old and New Testament, is much deeper, much richer than that, isn't it? It's a peace that's beyond just an absence of something. It's, the, it's a positive something. So uh, a couple synonyms would be a, 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 an idea of completion or restoration. That's the kind of peace that he's talking about. So 1 Kings 9.25, King Solomon, when he finishes, when he completes the temple, it's, it, the, the word there is used the same word, shalom. He shaloms the temple. He completes it. He finishes it. Or Exodus 22, we read about how if, if your animal goes into somebody else's land and destroys some things, you would come and you'd make restitution. You'd make a payment to restore that land to be like it's supposed to be. You would bring shalom to your neighbor's land by making it right. This is a picture of justice, of wholeness, of completion. It's more than just a, not having a, a, an argument. It's about how are we working together to make things right. Maybe you've seen some Bible Project videos. Bible Project's a great uh, ministry. He does incredible word studies and Bible studies and those kind of things. And in their, their word study for Shalom, they, they draw this picture of a, a stone wall that's been, been broken in certain places. And then all the pieces come back together and it makes the wall right again. That's Shalom. 
is that everything is right. Everything is good. Everything is as it's supposed to be. A society that has shalom is not just a society where there's no official wars. A society of shalom is a society where things are going well, where there's mutual upbuilding and encouraging and, and you're flourishing together. So the word I'd give you for, for shalom today, last week our word was devoted. This week the word is flourish, flourish. That's what we long for, isn't it? We long, when we look at our kids, when we look at our grandkids, we don't want them to just, you know, not be in fights all the time. I mean, that's a good thing. We don't want them to be in fights all the time. But we hope for more, don't we? We hope that they would thrive, that they would flourish. At work, you don't want to just get by without like having an argument every day with your boss or your employees or something. No, you want to flourish together. You want to thrive together. How is that possible? Is it possible to find flourishing this side of heaven? Is it possible to, to really thrive in this world before Christ returns? Some people don't think so. Some people don't think that's, that's possible. And sometimes you look around the world, you think, okay, they may be right some days. But the reality is, God intends, not, don't, don't miss here, uh, I'm not saying prosperity is always possible. Prosperity very well may not be possible. But a true sense of completion and wholeness and justice, even when things are hard, that, that can be possible. Heaven is when it's going to be all made right. We'll be with God face to face. But this side of heaven, there's more there's more possible. When we read Jeremiah's letter to the exiles, we get this sense that there's a, 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 an, a, an ability to experience the glory of God here and now. Think about the world he made. If God just made the world we're in as a stepping stone or a waiting room to get to heaven, if that's all the purpose of this world is, he kind of went overboard in creating this world. It's a little bit lavish if this is just a waiting room for what's next. Why are there billions and billions of stars if this is just a, a waiting room for what's to come? Why are there 320,000 species of just plants in the world if this is just a waiting room? Why, do, why are there so many millions of species of animals that scientists don't even know yet how many different animals there are on our planet? Why are there mountains and rivers and beautiful waterfalls why are there icebergs and bald eagles and ladybugs and rocket ships and skyscrapers and coffee? <laughs> if this is just a waiting room for what's to come, God sure went overboard in decorating his waiting room. There's got to be a meaning and a purpose to life now too. Don't mishear me. Heaven's going to be amazing. That is where we're headed. But God has a purpose for then and for now. He wants us to experience in a real way His glory and His majesty and participate in His kingdom in a way that is continuous with the heaven that is to come. When we read Jeremiah's letters to the exiles, it, it probably will be surprising to us. And it was very surprising to the people who received it. In fact, those who heard it wanted to kill him for it. This was not a popular letter that was written. Some 600 years before Christ, he wrote about finding peace in a place that is evil, wicked. And people around him didn't like it. Listen to how he finds, says we should find peace and see if you hear why this might be backwards from what we would expect. Jeremiah 29.7 says this, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. 
and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Did you hear how you can find shalom, welfare, peace, flourishing? You find it by seeking it for other people and even people who are your enemies. The way you find peace, the way you find justice and righteousness and for things to be good and wonderful in the world is not to just seek it for yourself, but to give it away, to seek it for other people even people who might be your enemies. So to give you a, a, a big picture, 30,000 foot view vision for life and ministry and this year and every year, here's my encouragement to you. Seek the flourishing of your city. Seek the flourishing of your city, of your family, of your work, of your job, of your wherever you go, whatever you do. Try to give flourishing. Try to give shalom and peace and righteousness away. Try to see other people do well. In their welfare, in the flourishing of the city, that's where you ultimately will find your welfare. I first came across this vision, just to give credit, uh, to Tim Keller probably 10 years ago. Maybe more, I'm not sure. And, uh, and Amber and I quoted this verse hundreds of times to one another and really adopted this as a kind of a mindset for our, our family and our ministry. We, we want to think about flourishing but not just for ourselves. We want to think about flourishing for everywhere around us and invest deeply in those around us. And this is really a, a mindset for us as a church to be thinking about those not just that are gathered right around us, but those in our community and really all around the world. From the beginning, this church, long before I was here, has had a very outward-focused mindset, and that is so healthy. That is so healthy. There is a temptation in churches everywhere that if you, are, if you are growing, and even if you're not, but if you're growing, there can be a temptation to get more and more inward focused. And, and as somebody in leadership, I totally see this temptation. Because figuring out how to structure your nursery when you only have like two kids under the age of two isn't very complicated. When you get to like 10, 15, all you out here having babies, I see you. <laughs> it gets complicated to staff your nursery. <laughs> When, 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 things, when there's not many things going on, then, then things are okay. But when you fill up a Bible study room and you don't fit in there anymore, it gets complicated. And you've got to start thinking about security and you've got to think about uh, discipleship groups and you've got to think about staffing children's classes and youth ministry. And then there's more funerals and weddings and there's counseling and there's crisis and there's grief and there's children who are born, there's birthdays and anniversaries and so on. And it can be overwhelming to just take care of the needs of those around you. And there can be a temptation in church just to get more and more inward focused, just to look at the people around you and just say, i got to do this and do this and this. And before you know it, you forget the world's out there. There is a temptation to just get so myopic, so navel-gazing that you forget the world. And if you do that as a church, as a, as a church family, you shoot yourself in your foot. <laughs> Because where we find our true joy is in following Christ. And Christ called us to make disciples of all nations. If we get so concerned with this, and don't, don't mishear me, of course we're going to meet each other's needs. We are a church family. But you can be tempted to get overly focused that way and forget to love your neighbor that doesn't come inside the church walls. What does it look like to seek the flourishing of your home, to seek the flourishing of of your job, with the people you work with, what does it look like to desire fountain in to flourish 
and Simpsonville to flourish and Graycourt and Lawrence and Clinton and, and Woodruff and all the upstate? What does it look like for us to seek the flourishing, not just of people who come to 412 Fairview Street Extension, but seek the flourishing of our community? There are so many ways that we all lack peace that you could go on and on and make a long list, couldn't you? Of all the places that need more peace and justice and flourishing and shalom. But what's our, what's our biggest? If you've got to start with the biggest one. Surely it's social media, right? No, I'm just kidding. Surely it's, it's politics or the economy or inflation or, or taxes or infrastructure problems or kids these days, you know? Surely it's one of those things, right? Well, I mean, you know, yes and no. But the biggest one is just sin. We are sinful people. The thing that most hinders the sin, the most hinders the flourishing of your family, of our community, of our neighbors, is our sin. And the greatest solution of peace we can bring is the one who said he is peace, namely Jesus Christ. John 12, uh, 14, 27, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. He came to bring peace. And, and how did he do that? Colossians 1.20, we read through that, that through Jesus, God is able to reconcile to Himself all things, making peace. And how do you do it? He says He did it by the blood of His cross. The only way that there is peace, the only way that can be true shalom and wholeness, is if we have received the good news of the gospel, turned from our sins, and believed in, in Christ for our salvation. That is the only way that we can have ultimate peace. Having peace, having flourishing, having true welfare comes in first having a right relationship with God. And then that relationship transforms how we relate to others. Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or Ephesians 2.14, read that Jesus Himself is our peace. And in verse 16, He talks about how He can reconcile different groups of people to God in one body. How? Through the cross. Through the cross. That's how we have peace. It may seem like, of course, no Christian would disagree with that, right? No Christian would disagree with, we have, we have good news to share. We have a, 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 an opportunity to share news about peace to the world. And yet, as Christians, we can testify, we, we, are, we have a temptation to not share that. To not share the peace that we know with those around us. That temptation was similar to the temptation that Jeremiah wrote about to the exiles in Babylon. So if we're going to seek the flourishing of the city, I want to tell you a couple ways not to do that and then how to do that. We'll start with what not to do. So first, don't isolate from or blend into your city. If you're going to, if you're going to help a city prosper, flourish, thrive, have welfare, have shalom. The two, two ways you can mistake that, to do that incorrectly, would be to isolate from the city, where the city never sees you, or blend in so much that the city doesn't recognize you as different. Two opposite mistakes we could make. The letter from Jeremiah 29 is in response to a false prophet in Jeremiah 28 named Hananiah. And he told the people of Israel that he heard from God which turns out to be a lie, but he says he heard, out from, heard from God that they're only going to be in exile for two years. Jeremiah said, man, that'd be great. We would love that. Only problem is God didn't say that. 
God said we're going to be here for a generation, for 70 years or so. Hananiah says, look, we're only going to be here for two years, so look, don't settle down. Don't worry about trying to build a house. Don't need to plant a garden. Don't get married. Don't have children. Just, just hold tight. Just, just hang in there for two years, and then you'll come home. You don't need to do anything for that city. Just, just stay in your bubble, and you'll be just fine. You'll be back here shortly. Same thing at uh, the end of chapter 29, another false prophet named Shemaiah uh, said, there's just no way that Jeremiah could be right. There's no way that God would want his people to multiply and have all these blessings that sound like what he said to, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That, that was all promised land stuff, Jeremiah. You cannot possibly be right to say this here in Babylon. This is a foreign land. We can't be blessed here. We can't find peace here. It's all about getting back to Israel. We got to get back to the promised land. Jeremiah, you're missing it. Now, aside from the fact that neither one of those people actually heard from God and they're lying, if you take that part out, which is a big part, what they're saying actually doesn't sound that crazy, does it? If, if they were not, you know, just making this up, it actually doesn't sound crazy to say, look, we're, we're God's people, and yes, we messed up, and God sent us into exile, but this is just a tough season. Let's just focus on getting back home. If we can just make it back to the promised land, then things will be okay. So look, don't, don't try to get messy with these Babylonians. They're evil people. You don't want to hang out with them. Just, just, just hold tight. Stick together. Don't get hurt. Don't lose anybody. Just huddle up, and then we will be back home shortly. Right? However, God makes it clear that these prophets were not in any way doing what he sent them to do. At the end of chapter 28, God tells Jeremiah to tell Hananiah, you're so wrong, you're going to die before the end of the year. And a few months later, he dies. So God makes it clear that wasn't a good prophet. Shemaiah, same thing. God tells Jeremiah to tell Shemaiah he's going to be cursed forever and his descendants will be cut off and that none of his family will ever see the blessing of God. So we get to the end of those two chapters and we go, you know what? Those guys may have sounded logical, but they are nowhere close to following the Lord. Not following the Lord. So the so-called prophets were clearly wrong. But I wonder if you can recognize those same kind of voices, false prophets, in a temptation we may face in our world today. The temptation looks like this. Hey, heaven's coming. It's, it's, be ready for that. And the world around you is just so wicked, don't get messed up in it. Don't go out there. They're evil. They might eat your children or something. You know? Like, just huddle up. Maybe once a week on Sundays, if you want to be really good, you know, come two or three times and just stay together with Christians and just don't go out there and touch those people. They might rub off on you. We don't say it that way, of course, but it's very tempted to live in a bubble, tempting to live in a bubble. Have you ever been in a community that feels like a bubble? College for us was like a bubble. Everybody lived on campus, and even though I was in Spartanburg, like, I felt like I never knew Spartanburg because everybody lived on campus. I lived in a bubble. I didn't know what was going on outside my bubble. That's a dangerous place to live, dangerous place to be. We're not called to be in a bubble. God warned the, the people of Israel while they're in Babylon, and he warns us today, do not isolate yourself from the city. Jesus told us in the, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, he called his followers the light of the world, which he is the light of the world, and he calls us the light of the world because we have the light of the world in us. And then he said this, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do the people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. The reason you have the light of the world is to show the light of the world. 
If you are hidden, if you're in a bubble, if you're cloistered up to where nobody ever sees you, then you're not sharing the light. You got to share the light. You got to share the light. There's an opposite temptation here that Jesus, I mean, that Jeremiah also warns the people of Israel while they're in exile, and it's a temptation we face too. One temptation would be to isolate ourselves, bubble up, just stay huddled together. The other temptation would become so much like the world that you just blend into the world. We're not called to isolate or to blend in. There's hints of the, the blending in in Jeremiah, but it's a little easier. Same, same idea. You can see it in Daniel. The time of Daniel. Read through the first, especially the first six chapters of Daniel. That he and the other exiles who have been abducted out of Jerusalem to Babylon, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to assimilate or blend in the Israelites into their community. So in chapter 1, Daniel and his three friends, who we call Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those, those names are given to them named after Babylonian gods. They change their name. They change their diet in chapter 1. In chapter 3, they tell them they've got to bow down and worship this golden statue. In chapter 6, they tell them they cannot pray to anybody except for the king. What, is, what are they doing with all these commands? All these things are ways of getting rid of their Hebrew culture and language and names and religion. They're trying to make them blend in with the Babylonian society. He said, look, this will be a lot easier for you if you'll just act like us. Just leave all that Israel stuff back in Israel. You're in Babylon now. When you're in Babylon, do as the Babylonians do. And Daniel and his friends say, no way. No way. They refused to blend in, but the stakes were very high, were they not? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, for refusing to bow down to the statue, are thrown into a fiery furnace where surely they would die. And were it not for God's amazing saving grace, they would have. The people around the furnace died. It was so hot. And yet they came out alive. Daniel chapter 6, for not praying to the king, instead of praying to God, Daniel's thrown into a pit of lions. And were it not for the grace of God, the lions would have shredded every bone, just like they did for the people that were thrown in after Daniel. The stakes are high for them, and yet they refused to blend in. They were willing to stand out and to be different and to continue to seek God and to look like His followers, His people, even in a hostile environment. If we look just like the world we're around, we are of no use to the world. We cannot help the world if we look just like the world. So just like Jesus told His disciples to be a light to the world, in Matthew chapter 5, He also called us salt. And He said, if salt has lost its taste, it is no longer good for anything. So one temptation is just to huddle up and you would still kind of have the morals and the Christian ease type Christian stuff. The other temptation was to go out in the world and look just like the world. And then you have nothing to give the world. If we're going to be a blessing to the world, we've got to be in the world but not of the world. We've got to be salt and light. So what does that really look like? What does it look like? That was the how not to. What does it look like to be uh, seeking the welfare of the city? Verse 5 and 6 in Jeremiah 29 say this. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take uh, wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives to your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. So here's how I'd summarize that for us today and what it might look like for us to tangibly live this out. Invest deeply in your city. Invest deeply in your city, your community, your family, your work, your job, where, whatever circles God is putting you in. Invest intentionally and deeply. 
The, the commands that God, that God gives through Jeremiah to the exiles are words like build, plant, multiply, and pray. None of those things are accidental things you just stumble upon. You don't just one day accidentally start building something. It takes intentional effort. Nobody accidentally plants a garden. That is a, a, a plan. That's something you have to put together and think about and accomplish. Or maybe consider it in a kind of a, a literal way. Maybe spring break, March this year, you and some friends or family, whatever, you, you go and rent a place at the beach for the week. You know what you're not going to do there? You're not going to put a whole lot of money and effort into redecorating the walls of that condo you rented, right? You're not going to bring a bunch of picture frames and, and set it all up and make it look amazing. You're, you're not going to take the time to, to renovate one of the bathrooms that you, while you were there because, you know, it just needed an update. You're not going to spend that week really working hard and laboring to, to go out in one of the side yards and plant a, a vegetable garden. You know why? Because that summer, you're, it doesn't belong to you. You're not going to see the fruit of it. You're not going to see what comes from that. However, in the same month, in March this year, you could do any number of those things in your own home. You might take the time to, to redecorate or to, the kids are growing up, they need more space in the bathroom, we're going to renovate. or Maybe we're going to build a, a garden because we're going to be here, Lord willing, this summer to eat the fruit of what we planted. If we invest deeply, what we're saying is, yeah, heaven's coming. And when Christ comes back, we're going to be ready. But if he continues to tarry, if he's not back by summer, we're going to enjoy some cucumbers. Right? How do you invest deeply in a way that's knowing, hey, we, we, we may not see the fruit of it. Christ may come back. But so far for the last 2,000 years, he has let his disciples continue to minister and enjoy his creation and spread the gospel on this earth. You seek the welfare of the city by investing deeply in those around you. Jesus, of course, is uniquely capable of being he's Jesus and all, but he still served as a model. He invested widely. Everybody that came in contact with Jesus, even if it was just once, it impacted them. But Jesus also invested very deeply. Did he not? He had a small group of people that he poured a whole lot into year after year. Who are you investing in? What relationships are you forming? Do you know a whole lot of people? Great. Do you know a few people really deeply? Do you let them in? Do you invest deeply to help their walk grow and that way they can sharpen you? Who are you investing in in your community, in your neighborhood? What non-Christians are you investing in? Are, are you, that's, that's certainly my temptation. Church world is my world. It's hard for me to get to know non-Christians sometimes because you guys all know Jesus. We got to invest deeply in non-Christians too as salt and light we got to invest in those around us. What does it look like in your schools, investing in friends? What does it look like in your work, helping build relationships? Plant, build, these are metaphors for things that take time. It doesn't just happen by accident. It doesn't happen overnight. It may take a lifetime, but investing in your community is a worthwhile investment. Do you see the needs around you? Are your eyes open to what your community needs, what your work needs, what your family needs? And are you willing to get involved enough where it gets uncomfortable and you can show the love of the Lord to them? I know it feels, it almost feels selfish, but one of the things I most enjoy doing in our community is coaching my kids' sports teams. Because I get to just do something I love, sometimes hurt myself because I'm playing hard with them, you know. But I also get to, I get to invest in my kids, but every season, 10 to 15 kids and their families, we just get to just enjoy investing in something together. You know what, some of those times, like the Sanders family came, we, that's how we got to know you guys, was through that, and sometimes they become church people. 
Most of the time they don't. Most of those families aren't, aren't coming to infinity. That's not why we do it. We invest deeply in people. This is, this is a way to invest in our community and love on kids and help them grow and develop and see the way that they live. Watching what my wife gets to do as a public school teacher, man, you can look at it and be like, man, she doesn't get to preach the gospel in front of a classroom every day, but she gets to love on teenagers who are broken. They are, we are all, but some teenagers just wear it on their sleeves a little bit more. Teenagers are broken people, and she gets to invest in them. What are your, what are your hobbies? What are your interests? What are you passionate about? Is it guns or fishing or hunting or sports or whatever else it may be? Building something? What, what, are, you, what are you passionate? What's something you can do that, that you like doing? How can you use that gifting, that opportunity? What resources do you have? What opportunities do you have? How can you use those things that you're already doing or interested in to help spread the kingdom of God? How can you build relationships? You know what? Fishing's not eternal, but the relationship you're building while you're fishing, that's eternal. That'll last. How can you do what you're doing or want to do in a way that helps grow the kingdom of God? How can you seek the flourishing of our city and invest in people as you go about this year? Tonight, some of our students are helping one of our sister churches, Capstone, with an event they're having. And you can look at that and say, what, what a waste. They're not helping Infinity Church. Nope. But they're helping the kingdom of God. They're helping the kingdom of God. Are we seeking the flourishing of our city? not just of something that pats our own back. This mentality of seeking the welfare of the city gives value and meaning to your work. Your job matters, not just if one of your coworkers comes to know the Lord. That is absolutely a wonderful thing. But your job matters because you are working, doing something, creating something, adding value, adding meaning, building a, a workplace that people can, can get a, a, a build, uh, they can earn a living for themselves. These are meaningful things. God gave us a job before the fall. Adam had a job in the garden. Your job matters because you're investing in the world that God created. You, can you do that in a way that is seeking the flourishing of those around us? Build, plant, multiply, increase in number, make disciples, and don't forget to pray as you go. Pray on their behalf. Are you praying for the people that you're around? Are you praying for the people at your work? Are you praying for your community? Pray for their welfare because in their welfare, in their flourishing, that's where you're going to flourish. That's where you're going to flourish. Now, I know to you, Jeremiah 29.7 may feel like a really obscure, random verse we just kind of parachuted into today. But I want you to know this is not an isolated idea in the Bible. You go all the way back to Abraham. Why did God bless Abraham? so that through him all the families of the earth will be blessed. Joseph, one of, one of uh, Jacob's sons, he gets a job. You know what his job is? He's in charge of the grain in Egypt. Well, that's a random job. It's a job that God used to save thousands of lives because of the famine that would come. Daniel, David, so many different people throughout the Old Testament, God used for the flourishing of all kinds of people even people who didn't ultimately know Him, as a way of showing His mercy and His grace and His glory. In the New Testament, Peter describes us as exiles and Gentiles, I mean exiles and sojourners. And in doing so, he calls us to holiness. You know why he says it? So that the Gentiles would see our good deeds and glorify God in heaven. Jesus, of course, being the greatest example, He came to reconcile us to the Father. He came to give us peace so that we could share that peace with the nations as we make disciples.
God's given you gifts and opportunities, circles of relationships, people you know that nobody else here knows. You have opportunities that nobody else has. How can you seek the flourishing of that community this year in a way that helps them delight in and enjoy our Creator? And whether or not they know Him, you've given them the opportunity to flourish, to have peace, to have reconciliation. Be salt and light. Seek the welfare of the city. Seek the flourishing of your city.